0: Welcome to the weekly service message from the Crossbridge Church. Look for us on the web at www.crossbridgeny.org. Join us now as our special guest speaker delivers this week's message. Today we kick off the second week of Advent, and last week Pastor Nate explained to us by use of the scriptures that Advent is a season of waiting. In fact, it's not just waiting, but it's an excited anticipatory waiting. It's more akin to not being able to sleep the night before that big trip you've been waiting your whole life to take as opposed to, oh, I don't know, waiting for a light to turn green. But why do we wait? And what is it precisely that we're waiting for? It turns out the what, the why, the how, and all the other Advent questions tie directly to the who. Whom are we waiting for? Whom are we waiting to arrive? The answer, after all, should be obvious. It's Jesus, our King. Advent means the arrival of a notable person, event, or thing. Jesus being the notable person. The thing being salvation. And the event that we're waiting for is the second coming of our King. That's it, go home. Wait, I'll prove it to you. Open your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 12. Normally, I would ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. However, today we're going to read most of chapter 12. So rather than have you standing for the whole thing, please remain seated and follow along as I read. Exodus 12, Passover. Passover. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, where the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then you shall take some of the blood and put it onto the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning... And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Skip down to verse 21, please. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go. And select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of this door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. When he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door. Will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as He has promised, you shall keep this service. You shall say, "This is the." Oh, sorry. Skip the line. And when the children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, this is the service of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, "Up, Go out from among my people, both of you, and take, a, take the people of Israel and go. Serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. Skip down to verse 43, please. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is brought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones." All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall shall sojourn with you, and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near it and keep it, and he shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and one for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. This is the word of the Lord. (coughs) Now that the account of the Israelites at the first Passover is fresh in your minds, I'm going to do something a little bit different again. Normally, we exegete Bible uh, verses verse by verse. And I'm afraid if we do that, we're going to be here till Tuesday. So for that reason, I'm going to walk through the important events of this chapter. And we're going to break the word open as we go along. And in doing it this way, I think we can get out of here sometime this morning. It's going to be a really short sermon next time. The plague of the death of the firstborn is sent to Egypt, as were all the other plagues. And this plague, this one, is actually going to go against Israel as well. Why? To see that, we need to back up just a little bit to Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Because it says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. An outstretched arm can either be a king who offers a hand down to his subjects or a savior whose arms are stretched upon a cross. The important part here is that God redeems them out of Egypt with great acts of judgment. And to be clear, Israel is guilty of sin. In verse 12 of our chapter, God says that he will pass through the land of Egypt at night and execute great judgment on the gods of Egypt. God is judging their idolatry by... This time in their history, the Israelites have gone from a nation enslaved with about 70 to 100 people to well around 2 million people. They've been in Egypt a really long time. They've been infused with the culture of Egypt. And some Egyptian customs have become Israel's customs. One of the customs that Israel adopted It's the worship of false gods. Yes, they still worshipped Yahweh, but they also worshipped some of the Egyptian gods too. God is going to take out the idols of Egypt, and he's going to do it by showing his sovereignty through this plague. So why would the people of Israel need the blood of the Passover lamb to protect them from this plague because they're just as guilty as the Egyptians when it comes to idol worship look with me if you will to ezekiel chapter 20 verse 7 and i said to them cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on every one of you and do not defile yourselves with the idols of egypt i am the lord your god However, in their guilt, unlike Egypt, Egypt just has to take the plague and deal with it. Israel is given a way out. They're told by God that if they offer a lamb as a sacrifice and place its blood on the doorway of their homes, the destroyer angel will pass over them. When we understand the depth of Israel's sin, We understand their need for a savior. They will have to offer a sacrifice to God. There is no act that they can perform that will redeem themselves out of Egypt. So the concept is pretty straightforward. The actual doing part of it takes a lot of care. A lot of understanding of what God is telling them to do. Let's drill down a little bit and see where we go. They're told to get a one-year-old male lamb and to examine it for several days prior to its offering. The reason the lamb is one-year-old is that that was the age that an animal was considered to be adult. They're not supposed to get a child lamb. They're supposed to get an adult lamb. Upon the animals entering into adulthood, it was eligible for selection. Likewise, the lamb would be kept with the family and examined for four days. The lamb is selected on the tenth of the month. The lamb is offered a sacrifice on the fourteenth of the month. In the meantime, the lamb living with the family. You really wanted to make sure that there's nothing wrong with this lamb. So they would watch it, and they would examine it over the course of four days. Did it eat funny? Does it limp? Does it make noise? Does it do lamb things? At the end of the 14th day of the month, the whole congregation would gather and corporately kill the lambs. The Lord then gives very specific ways to cook this lamb. And specific ways of eating the lamb. And even more specifically, what to do with the blood that comes out of the lamb. The blood. This is where the rubber meets the road. The Lord institutes the first blood ritual. These offerings become what's known as sin offerings. Because it takes blood to atone for sin. Later, this ritual is overseen by the priests. But at this point, there are no priests, per se. The head of the household is the family priest, much the way the church looks at a priesthood today. But there's no consecrated priesthood as yet. God gives them the decree of the offering and gives very specific ways the lamb is to be cooked and eaten. He even prescribes how they're there to be dressed and their attitude during the meal. The fact that they were told to roast that lamb whole indicates that very little time is to be wasted on preparation. But more importantly, the sacrifice had to be the whole offering. Just as Christ was whole upon the cross. The lamb had to be whole as the offering. The animal is cooked whole, not boiled, not eaten raw. So no braised lamb shanks, no lamb stew, no lamb ta-ta. They're to eat it in an attitude of readiness. Sandals on their feet, belts cinched at the waist, Staff in hand. All this is directly contrary to how they currently take their meals. It's designed to point out the difference, the, the, uh, the, how different this meal is, but it's also to give them a glimpse of the nomadic life that they're in for. Let's not forget also that verse 20, uh, 51 tells us, on that very day... The Lord brought the people of Israel out of Egypt by their hosts. That very day, there was no time. God made sure that the people of Israel, his people, were ready when the time came to move. They were also prescribed that they shall roast the lamb with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Later, they're told to use a sprig of hyssop to touch the blood to the doorway. And it's interesting to note that a hyssop sprig was used to give Jesus the sour wine as he hung on the cross. God had a reason for prescribing all the details of the new statute. Part of it was to show how different this meal was. This was not a savory, tasty lamb dish. In fact, the term bitter herbs could be read as eating bitterness. Like they use the word in Lamentations 3.15. He has filled me with bitterness and given me a cup of sorrow to drink. The same word is used in Lamentations as is used in Exodus for bitterness. The offering also helps Set Israel apart from other nations. The meal and the very people are different. Nothing about this meal is normal. And it shouldn't be. The Lord is setting a new statute the statute of the Passover. They're told to take some of the blood of the lamb and place it on the doorposts and the lintels of the houses. The lintel is the part of the door that goes over the top of the door, like where the exit signs are on these doors. The placement is important. This is the way a person would access the home. Normally, if you're not crawling through windows, you go through the door. The door is covered by the blood of the Lamb. They're told by the Lord that no harm will befall their households and the destroyer will not harm them. See that in verse 23. John 10, 9, Jesus says, I am the door. Anyone enters, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the lamb. We're told by the Lord that no harm will befall their households and the destroyer will not harm them. The part that we should be keying on here is that a life had to be given. Blood had to be spilled to avoid the coming wrath and the coming judgment of God. In Matthew 26:28, Jesus says, "For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins." Believe me, if you're not reading the Bible with an eye toward God's wrath and judgment, then you're doing yourself and God's word a great disservice. In general, we should be careful how we find connections in Scripture. I don't know about you guys, but I can find a connection in a glass of water where none exists. It's like the candy cane. The folklore says that, the, that a choir master in Germany needed a way to keep children quiet. So he made and gave them sugar sticks because we know Giving kids sugar to quiet them down works really well. (laughs) Anyway, the story goes on to say later that he added the shepherd's crook and the coloring to draw connections to Jesus and the rest of the story. Is the folklore true? Who knows? It sounds really good though, right? It's a way of bringing the culture into the church instead of the other way around. We should be bringing the church out to the culture. In theological terms, we refer to this as chasing rabbits. It's the art of chasing and finding and chasing connections that either don't exist or are unimportant. I have a master's in this. Elmer Fudd got nothing on me when it comes to Rabbits. But this offering, this Passover lamb, is clearly pointing to Jesus. The only disagreement to this I could find is that some scholars disagree on the identity of who actually carries out the plague. Some scholars believe that it's the angel of death. Some believe it to be the archangel Michael. Others believe it to be Jesus himself. While they debate that, we can't deny that this account is a direct picture of Jesus' substitutionary death. Or, as they refer to it in Hebrews 10, this is a shadow of good things to come. The good thing is Jesus Christ. In fact, we can go so far as to say that every animal sacrifice in the Old Testament points to Jesus. He's not just the Passover lamb. He is every blood ritual for a sin offering in Scripture, starting in Genesis and ending in Revelations. That blood Christ's spilled blood equals forgiveness. And let's not lose sight of the consequences of sin. Death. In this case, the sin of idolatry called for the death of the firstborn. When we think about this, we pull up ideas of babies and slightly older children were dying. And they were. My firstborn at home is 34 years old. You can be well into your senior years and still be the firstborn of your family. Scripture don't say nothing about children. This plague did not discriminate by age, by gender, or by species. This plague was proclaimed for all man and beasts. Verse 12. And the Lord didn't say he would only strike down firstborn males. All of Israel was guilty of idolatry, and therefore all of israel needed a savior god sent that savior and redeemer in the person of jesus christ his cousin john the baptist knew it in john 129 john the baptist says behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world the passover And all the blood rites were established to give the Jewish people an avenue to salvation. Here, we raise the ante. John the Baptist calls Jesus the one who will take away the sin of the world. Jesus was not just sent for the Jewish people. He was sent for everybody. When Jesus entered Jerusalem for the last time, he entered a few days before Passover. This in itself is not unusual for a rabbi and its followers. However, Jesus is not just any rabbi. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, he's accepted by the crowds as the chosen one of God. Hosanna, they cry. Later, in Gethsemane, he's chosen again. But this time as the Lamb of God, suitable for sacrifice. He's brought before the Sanhedrin, where he's examined and cannot cannot be found guilty. Then he's brought before Pilate in John 19, 4, where we are told Pilate can find no guilt in him. Still later, he's brought before Herod, Herod examines him, and as we see in Luke 23, Pilate says that Herod couldn't find any fault in him. They didn't see it. Jesus was declaring himself blameless. Here he stood, the adult male lamb, having been examined over the course of several days, and found spotless. As the account of his passion continues, he is killed in ways to conform to scripture. As he hung on the cross, the bitter herbs were offered by way of the sour wine. That was offered to him by way of a sponge, offered to him by way of a hyssop branch. There was no carphragneum. Verse 45 tells us, you shall not break any of its bones. Carphragnium was the breaking of the legs of a crucifixion subject. They couldn't do it. If Jesus' legs were broken as Roman tradition dictated, they would not only violate our verse 45, but Isaiah 53... Psalm 16, Psalm 103, Psalm 30, Genesis 21, and the list goes on. So where are we going? I think we see how Jesus has fulfilled the statute of the Passover lamb. And as such, he stands as the perfect mediator to the Father. 1 Timothy 2.5 says... Excuse me. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. But do we understand what being that mediator does? We've seen that Christ is the perfect sin offering, the only perfect sin offering. He stands in our place before the Father. And he takes the punishment destined for me. And he pronounces my debt paid. He's a defense attorney who goes before the judge and says, I will take the punishment for my client. And as a result, their debt is paid. As I studied this week, I came across a phrase comforting truth. In Hebrews 9, verse 15, it says, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. This is the best definition of a comforting truth that I could think of. Christ had died as a ransom to set me free from my sin. This morning, we sang God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. I asked the band to play that song for me, and they took it upon themselves to learn it, and I think they did a great job with it, and I thanked them very much. The refrain of that song is tidings of comfort and joy. And honestly, Who doesn't want a little of both, right? That comfort and that joy can only be found in Jesus Christ. We've spent an awful lot of time this morning seeing how Jesus relates to the Passover. That's because that's when our advent started. I started waiting for Jesus to take on my sin back at the Passover doesn't matter I wasn't born yet. I'm still counted among God's elect. And so are you, if you follow Jesus Christ. We anxiously await the day that we can see that comfort and joy on our Savior's face. You know why that's an exciting thought to me? Because that means he's back. You see, Passover didn't point us to one advent. It pointed us to two. It points us to the birth of a baby in Bethlehem to bring salvation. But it points even more strongly to the second coming of the king of kings. We celebrate daily that we are Christians, that we have a life in Christ, And he in us. It changes the way we think. That's why in certain situations where people see heartache and gloom, we see comfort and joy. We know what this life has in store for us is temporary. Because we're waiting in our advent for the next life, for the second coming. We as Christians are unique in this as we celebrate our lives backwards. We don't say, yay, Adam's going to eat the fruit. Thank you. (laughs) No, we say, yay, Jesus is coming back. And when he does, I get to be with him. Our hope, our comfort, our joy is based on us knowing, knowing and believing and waiting on that second coming. That's our advent. That's what I'm waiting for. You should be too. Let's pray. Father, you are the Lord, our God, who brought Israel out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who brought us out of darkness and into your marvelous light, out of slavery to our sins, and into the freedom of the gospel. You have commanded that we are to have no other gods before you, Lord, help us resist the gods of this world, the constant temptation of our society, the war against our hearts and minds. By your Spirit, renew us day by day, that we may not only resist false gods, but actively seek after you, the true God, with all of our heart, with all of our mind, all of our souls, and all of our strength. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Please feel free to share this message, but remember, don't charge for it or change it. The Lord's message should be free and for everyone.